Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about labour in the middle class. Philip Morn talks to Ryan Gilby about the controversial nature of the Wolf of Wall Street, and Ian Stebman and I discuss the drugs used to administer the death penalty in America. I'm joined by George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, and our political editor, Raphael Baer, to talk about the week in politics. Raph, we're going to start off talking about um, Labour's election strategy, because you interviewed Douglas Alexander, who, as well as being Shadow Foreign Secretary, is also in charge of Labour's election planning. Where are they on on that? Uh, Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Douglas Alexander got the job in the uh, reshuffle at the end of last year. There had been a degree of anxiety on the Labour side that they didn't really have anyone who was uh, in charge of, of giving them the campaign uh, that would enable them to win. Um, the, the key message that I took from that conversation um, with Douglas was uh, that the, the, sort of the missing thing they feel that they really need to fill, a gap, is having some forward-looking offer about how Labour would deliver prosperity for the country, uh, given that they have this criticism of, of George Osborne's austerity plans, they have this sort of uh, complaint, essentially, about the cost of living, um, and what they recognise is that although they you know, they can get a bit of traction on on the austerity thing, although frankly we all know they've they've sort of lost that argument quite badly in terms of people thinking Labour spending all the money was was kind of the problem. They definitely feel they they've won and are winning the argument on the cost of living. That people recognise that actually Ed Miliband is onto something when he says that even when the economy grows, it doesn't seem to turn up in people's pockets, and the Conservatives are the party of the rich. Um, those are two important parts of the economic argument. The third very important part, and we ac- pretty much accept that the election will be fought around the economy, is who actually has the best story to tell about how uh, Britain is going to make its way uh, in the future so that everyone feels the benefit. And they don't think the Tories have actually nailed that at all. They think the Tories are sort of facing backwards, trying to refight the last election. 
they accept that Labour hasn't really said anything about that yet. And so now the point is that's the that's where they want the message to go. And this makes quite an interesting counterpoint with what you wrote in your column, which is a lot about the Tories' election strategy. Specifically, this, this phrase we've heard a lot from Linton Crosby, it's this idea of scraping the barnacles off the boat, which actually some Tory MPs think has translated into a kind of monomaniacal focus on only bread and butter issues that risk them looking nasty. Yeah, the, 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 the criticism I'm starting to pick up of the Crosby approach is that it's all about... Um, priming the issues where people already think the Tories are good. So, which is that point about budget discipline, um, immigration and crime, toughness on all the things that we think Conservatives like to claim to be tough on. Uh, and what you do is you, you choose the issues that, first of all, are salient, people care about, which is immigration, the economy, crime, that sort of thing. Uh, you zero in on the ones where people think the Tories are strong and you ramp them up as hard as you can. So essentially you make the election about the things that people are going to go, this is what I care about, and lo and behold, the Tories are good on it ergo vote Tory and what the the sort of moderate liberal conservatives are saying is that it simply doesn't understand that actually the hurdle the thing that stopped the Tories winning a majority in every single election of the 21st century hasn't been that people you know really want them to be tough on immigration is that people don't trust them on a whole bunch of other things that there's a sort of cultural barrier there's sort of antibodies in the body politic for a lot of people against voting Tory this is like the idea of the NHS yeah so, so they don't trust the Tories with the NHS they think the Tories are always going to favour their rich friends and that Actually, the, the Crosby strategy simply doesn't have a mechanism for uh, addressing that, sort of counteracting that inoculation that people have against voting Tory. And George, immigration is an interesting issue because there's been quite a lot of apologies about not having the transitional controls when Poland, um, the labour market was opened up to then. Chukra Muna last week on Question Time started trying to rewrite the Treaty of Rome, saying it was about movement of workers, not movement of persons. Where are Labour at the moment on immigration? So Labour and immigration have moved significantly. I mean, actually, this is where uh, arguably Miliband's moved Labour to the right and every other issue, he's, he's pretty much moved it to, to the left. But um, Blair, Mandelson, even even Brown to an extent, the figureheads of New Labour took a very liberal view of immigration, that it was part of a modern, globalised, open economy. Um, Miliband actually argues that you need to, to regulate the free movement to Labour as well as regulating markets um, to ensure that they work for for the low paid in particular, and they say yes, you can listen to economists like Jonathan Portis, who will tell you, and and this is true that immigrants are of net benefit to the economy, that they contribute more in taxes than they receive in benefits and services. But voters don't live their lives in the ag- in the aggregate, and so in particular sectors like construction, like agriculture, there is evidence that immigration is having a downward pressure on wages. Um, That's a tricky point, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, Nigel Farage said even if immigrants were good for the economy, he still didn't want them. I can't yes. imagine a Labour politician being able, feeling able to say anything close to that. But that does seem to be... I mean, that's where the evidence now is, you know, that, that, that yes. actually... I take your point about the aggregate. but I, So where does that leave Labour in terms of why they're opposed to immigration? Well, they're trying to frame it as uh, an economic issue and to say we want less low-skilled immigration and we want to ensure certainly that all employers pay the minimum wage. We'd like more to pay the living wage. And also every time that uh, an employer hires a migrant worker, we're going to ask them to create an apprenticeship. Um, so I think this is actually a position that Labour can go into the election with that will... I think they recognise that they're not going to 
uh, outbid the Tories in immigration. They're not going to ever win on that issue, but they're going to try and neutralise it. And one Labour election strategist said to me recently that in some ways they're in a better position than the Tories because they haven't promised so much on immigration. So the Tories had this target... Which is the cap of 100,000, yeah. which everyone says they like in polling, and then everyone says they don't think that David Cameron will be able to achieve. Yes, and they're not going to be able to achieve it. So but actually, because voters think Labour's in such a terrible position on immigration to begin with, any sign of improvement is uh, is a gain for them. Yeah, I think that that's quite an optimistic analysis of where where <laughs> Labour are on this. I mean, the, the, the problem they have, and it's very interesting, uh, Chucker did say, on question time um, that you know, free need to sort of re-examine the, the, the role of the free movement has within existing EU rules. Very senior Labour people over the weekend hosed that down, poured buckets of cold water on it, said it may, may have sounded like Trucker moved our position. He didn't. Uh, so they basically put him right back in his box. And the problem that they have essentially is that uh, for a long time, you know, you've been aware that people don't like um, mass immigration, as they see it. Uh, there's another separate issue which has been the public British public being very Eurosceptic. Uh, now, obviously, those issues are entirely connected in this question of free movement, and that's why it became um, that there was a sort of a flurry of panic around the idea of a sort of tsunami of Romanians and Bulgarians crossing the border on the 1st of January, uh, which they didn't. But when you've got the, one of the big landmark political events of this year being May's European elections, the idea that really for the first time you properly get mass prop integration of the Europe question and the mass immigration question. Obviously, that's good for UKIP. It puts the Tories on the spot. But it's still terrible, terrible for Labour if that becomes embedded in everyone's minds because then they start thinking, well, whenever you ask a question about what's Labour's position on immigration, you also ask a question about what's Labour's position on Europe. And if Labour have difficulty having a position on immigration, they're in even worse shape having a position on Europe. And it becomes hard to talk about being able to say people don't care about Europe because you're then acknowledging that Europe is actually a proxy for other things. Exactly. Whereas I, I, you know, we have. I feel that I feel the argument has been very successfully made that people really don't care that much about an EU referendum, except as a proxy for we're being ruled for by someone else and we don't. And, have and if over the, our, the old sovereignty ourselves. argument, which you could easily say is something Bill Cash can kind of swivel his eyes over as much as he likes, no one really cares. Uh, the, the counter argument that gets stronger and stronger is, well, no, actually, what we're talking about here is immigration. And just quickly to finish, um, Ed Miliband wrote for The Telegraph, kind of moving out of his comfort zone a bit there, to about defending the middle class. Now, there is a large looming question here about, I think you wrote about this, about what Telegraph readers consider the middle class to be when the median wage is £26,000 a year. What was the point of that pitch, George? So I think there were, there were two points. So this is Miliband returning to territory to explore before. So his, the first piece he wrote in, in the Sunday Telegraph was on, after he was elected leader, was on Squeeze the Middle. Now he's talking explicitly about the middle class. And I think, firstly, that's because a lot of the policies they announced around the conference, abolition of the bedroom tax, cracking down on exploitative zero-hour contracts, strengthening the minimum wage, were aimed at the low-paid, what we'd consider Labour's working-class core votes. So I think they feel that they, they need to broaden their offer to attract middle-income voters. But it's also because if you look at what's happened since the recession, it's that group that has experienced that has experienced the largest fall in living standards. So they're better off than the low paid. Sorry, that I should have... say that's not an ambulance coming to take George away or anything like that. We are broadcasting to you live from essentially a building site here. Sorry, George, carry on. Uh, they have fallen the most. And so for that, they think that they feel they have been particularly let down by uh, the government, uh, have been failed by 
the performance of, of the economy. And Miliband is trying to frame this as that almost everyone is worse off except the 1%, except the very rich. And it's that group that he's going to say the Tories uh, can't stand up yeah. to, only I can stand up to the strong. So it really is sort of a, a slightly different way of framing the 99% against the 1%. And also, I'm, I'm fairly confident what they will try now try to do, having sort of set out that that pitch to the middle class as they see it um, is connect that to what we were saying at the beginning about a forward-looking offer for prosperity they are going to try and raid the sort of Barack Obama campaign line about how the way you build an economy is from the middle out you basically your middle class is your engine of economic growth and progress and if you've got to, these people who have suffered the most you have to nurture them and look after them because that's how you get sustainable growth in the future and, and they, they can't use the line growing from the middle out because Barack Obama got there first. What they are now thinking is, what is our equivalent line that says the same thing in different words that make sense to people? I have to say, one thing I'm feeling enormously grateful for, I'm reading Double Down, which is the account of the 2012 election race, and it talks specifically about that line about Barack Obama trying to appeal to the middle class and the terrible state and the fact that, you know, that could have been lost in the election in the sense of that lost him all the donors from Wall Street, all the bundlers that had previously buried millions and millions for the campaign were completely turned off by that. And there was what I'm going to end with a final note of optimism that at least that isn't a problem in British politics. Is it? Uh, I, I think... I mean, it's not to the same extent, is it? I guess there's people like Lord Ashcroft in the past have put a lot of money into political parties, but... Yeah, well, the... the... The Tories have rich donors and Labour ha- is bankrolled substantially by trade unions and, and that is a, the structural balance of power in funding politics in this country and, and everyone talks about changing it and nothing happens. Which is going to be... Sorry, you had optimism there. No, I know, quickly, I like, you crushed it again. again. But, um, we, 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 can, we can cut this last bit from the podcast and end on your note of optimism. You don't even need to say what it is, just say you're feeling really optimistic. I'm just feeling really optimistic and on that note, thank you George and thank you Raf. So Ryan, you've reviewed The Wolf of Wall Street in this week's magazine and you describe it as a, a bestial, carnivalesque performance. Um, what, are, what are some of the issues that are coming out uh, of this film? Um, well, it's the uh, true story of, of Jordan Belfort, who was a stockbroker in the 80s and 90s, and um, he ran a boiler room business, and he, he was sent to prison for fraud. And, um, you know, the film kind of delves right into his, uh, his life and his kind of hedonism, and, um, you know, in the same way that, I mean, it's by Martin Scorsese, and in the same way that Scorsese got kind of right under the skin of the gangsters in Goodfellas, and, um, you know, under the skin of, of Travis Bickle, the psychopath in Taxi Driver. You know, we're completely immersed in the stockbroker's world. So, um, you know, it can be quite um, kind of alarming and disorientating to find yourself um, not exactly cheering them along, but just, you know, they're enjoyable escapades, a lot of the things that we see the stockbrokers getting up to um, in the film. And then, um, you know, hopefully... Hopefully, if the viewer has any sort of presence of mind, you'll pull, pull back at a certain point and realise that, um, that it's not so amusing. And the question really is to what degree um, Scorsese is, is kind of uh, is, is indulging in, in the behaviour that's seen on screen and to what degree he's condemning it. This has provoked a reasonable amount of, of controversy online. Um, and even from, you know, I haven't seen the film yet, but I've seen the trailers and, and, it, and it brings up all of those kinds of feelings about, about bankers, which have been in the air and, and people who work in finance, which have been in the air for, since the financial crisis, really, which is to what degree 
uh, do we condemn this behaviour and to what degree do we admire it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that... Um, I, cer I certainly wouldn't look to, to um, a film to give me that kind of point. And I'm glad, I'm glad in a way that Scorsese doesn't, although I think that there is a kind of problematic um, fondness for the characters in mm. the film. And the fact that the film gets so much of its, of its energy, and it's just really one kind of energy, it's, it's just real manic sort of momentum. It gets all that from their behaviour. So in a way, uh, you know, it, although it doesn't endorse their behaviour, it's like without it, the film, you know, kind of wouldn't exist. That's what the film is. It's this kind of, um, you know, for want of a better term, kind of roller coaster ride through, mm. you know, through the, the terrible things that the characters um, got up to. But, um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't really think, I don't want Scorsese to kind of come out and say, this is terrible, because, you know, hopefully, as I say, if we've got any presence of mind, we'll know already that it's terrible. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that yeah, he's I think he's conflicted. I mean, if, it's, it's actually quite bold to do, you know, to make a three-hour film about people who've made all of our lives um, noticeably worse. Our day-to-day -day lives are, are, you know, are, are worse. We've got less money. We've got less um, kind of... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Contentment because of people like this. I mean, in a way, it's, I, I think it's more... Um, even even riskier than when he made films like um, Goodfellas and Casinos, where we're watching um, violent kind of um, psychopaths whose um, you know whose actions haven't actually impacted directly on our lives in the way the bankers have. Yeah, do you think having Leonardo DiCaprio as the leading man may have something to do with this? So you know he's clearly become uh, something of a muse, or at least he's become you know late face Scorsese sort of. Uh, He's, this is now his fifth film um, with Scorsese. Do you think, I mean, is it possible for him to play a dislikable character? Oh, he does it so brilliantly. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that's the key to it. I haven't really been that impressed by the work that he's done with Scorsese before, the four, the four performances he's given for him before, but you, you just couldn't imagine anyone being any better or you know, any better cast in this role or any, just, just you know, he, he uses his charm so brilliantly to, to you know, put us in that bind where we're enjoying being in his company, and yet he's doing he's doing um, really horrific things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just a, a brilliant performance. I don't think it's a brilliant film, but it's a brilliant performance. More so than Gatsby, because of course you know the sort of sort of smug, uh, kind of uh, luxuriating uh, presence is there again. But but this time, um, well, and that time, I suppose, in both instances, it's, it it falls apart quite readily. Um, yeah, yeah, they're similar. It's interesting that he did those both in the space for you. I mean, there's there's obvious um, overlaps between the part, but he gets to really have fun here, and he gets to be. Um, I mean, there's just some some amazing um, kind of comic episodes where he gets to really let loose mm. um, there's one where he's um, a scene that's already becoming quite notorious where he's under the influence of, of quaaludes and loses all his kind of body coordination and power of speech and things like that and it's just a brilliant piece of, of slapstick I mean it's just it's just superbly controlled by Scorsese um, by DiCaprio and, and, and really um, nicely shot by, by Scorsese he just holds this this shot of, of DiCaprio kind of struggling to get to his car
car and then kind of hanging out of his car and uh, yeah, it's a re- it's a really a really amazing scene. So what if it's not um, if if you're if you're able to kind of you know go with the performance and so on, like where does your and your problem isn't per se the notion of of, of indulging in the behaviour that no. we we already know is you know it's it's a, it's a it's a known thing that that is going to cause all kinds of problems. Um, where where is your problem? Yeah, I think the, the big problem is um, is that Scorsese just isn't interested in in anybody else in the film yeah. um, i mean that you know just just to take for for a second the other stockbrokers i mean there aren't really any characters here everybody's got their own kind of quirk like jonah hill uh is is uh DiCaprio, plays DiCaprio's kind of right hand man his best friend and you know he has these various quirks like like weird teeth and he married his cousin and things like that and everybody's you know there's another guy who has a who has a really obvious toupee and then they're, they're not characters they don't have Levels and layers in the way that um, that DiCaprio's character does. Um, so, so that's that's kind of the main problem that I have with the film, in that just no nothing else apart from Jordan Belfort is interesting to Scorsese into the film, and everybody else is just a little sketch. And um, but where that where that really um, becomes a problem is with Ni- um, the character of Naomi, who's um, Jordan's second wife, um, j- just simply because she's we only we only see her the way that that. Um, Jordan sees her, so she's she becomes this kind of yeah, as you say, like a shrew and a nag. And in in um, the worst scene, I think in the film, um, she um, she withdraws um, when she finds out that um, that Jordan has been unfaithful. She withdraws all kind of sexual attention from him, but takes the kind of um, you know parading around the house, sort of with her underwear and things like that. Mm. And and you think, well, this is great because she's got. Um, you know, she, here's someone who's actually challenging him and standing up to him and saying, no, you can't have things your own way. Um, and then the, the, the scene takes a really nasty kind of misogynistic twist. Um, and I, won't, I won't go into exactly what happens, but suffice to say that all her kind of triumph and victory is taken away from her. And she's, um, yeah, she's humiliated um, for the sake of some cheap laughs for the audience, really. And Jordan is kind of restored back on top to his place of power. So it just seems really kind of blinkered. There, there are lots of ways you could have presented her, um, you know, kind of more as a more forceful character in the film. Just give her a few more scenes. I mean, uh, Margot Robbie, who plays her, is, a, is a, a really good sort of persuasive, powerful actress. But, um, yeah, the character is just completely squandered. Final question. Do you think this is uh, Oscar's material? I mean, it's the right time of the year to release yeah. a film, of course. Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, it was always said that, that Goodfellas didn't do well at the Oscars because it was um, featured such reprehensible characters. Um, I think, it, it, yeah, it lost out to Dances with Wolves and Scorsese lost out as Best Director to Kevin Costner that year. Um, so, you know, there, I guess there has been a, a tradition of, of Oscar voters going for more heartwarming, reassuring films. Um, so in that sense, I don't, no, I can't imagine it's going to, um, you know, win Best Picture or Best Director. It, 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 not, not only because there are stronger contenders in the form of, um, you know, Gravity's been more popular and better liked, and 12 Years a Slave would probably be the conscientious vote to go for. And DiCaprio, I'd be sad if he didn't, um, if he didn't get an Oscar for this, actually, because, um, I mean, it's not that I care about Oscars, it's just that, you know, he's never going to be better than this, he's never going to have a better role, it's, it's, as I said before, you couldn't imagine anyone doing this part better or being better cast, um, and and he really gives it his all. Um, it's a it's a difficult uh, role and a problematic film, um, but but most of the film's successes are down to him. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thank you.
I'm joined by our science and tech writer Ian Stedman to talk about the death penalty. That sounds like initially like quite an odd thing to be talking about with the science and tech writer Ian, but the story essentially is there was an execution before Christmas in Oklahoma uh, of a guy and they had to use an out-of-date drug because the Dutch company which makes one of the three drugs that they use uh, in, in executions has banned it from being exported to the yes. US and banned it from being used being sold to the US prison service. Yeah. So what exactly happened? Um, yeah, it, it's quite... The basic story here is that um, the US is executing people as a death penalty. There are 10 states that have it. Um, But they're finding it really difficult to find the drugs because most of the drugs are manufactured in the EU and the EU is quite strict about uh, torturing the death penalty. Um, This man in particular is a guy called Michael Lee Wilson who, by all accounts, is a not very nice guy who uh, I think executed a convenience store owner during a robbery. Mm. Um, But when he was being killed... He was, you know, the the idea is that you're given these lethal injection drugs so and you kind of slip an, away. An anaesthetic and a paralytic, yeah. and then your heart there is stopped. Three, yeah, there are three drugs that are normally used. There's sodium thiopental or pentobarbital, which are both barbiturates, about the same. They they basically send you asleep. There's potassium bromide, which par- paralyzes all of your muscles, and there's potassium chloride, which stops your heart. And usually, it's that kind of cocktail mixed in that order, which theoretically, since the early '90s, has been used in in these states to kill people. Um, the idea being, it's meant to be peaceful and not obviously distressing, because the well, the victim's family are often invited to attend to watch are. the execution, aren't they? Which yeah. Is, is another reason. But I, again, I was I watched Michael Portillo of all people made a fascinating documentary about this. Another one of the problems is that doctors won't administer the yeah. drugs. They're yeah. administered by by untrained There's people these, with the, with these the bizarre setups where you have like. Uh, there are three doctors we brought in and there's three buttons and all three press, but they don't know which one is the one that did it, so there's no culpability. In the same way, they used to give fake bullets to um, people in the firing squads mm. so that soldiers wouldn't have the responsibility of knowing who killed it. Um, there's also the problem that the Eighth Amendment to the US Constitution forbids cruel and unusual punishment. So any execution that's seen as like like psychologically scarring to someone who was subjected to it but then survived, for instance, would be seen as cruel and unusual. Though there's a lot of leeway. It's really, really vague and mm. quite obviously contradictory because you're killing someone. But um, the key point is there's the first one of those three drugs, pentobarbital or sodium thiopental. Those aren't manufactured in the US anymore. Uh, in 2011, the last company that made them went out of business or stopped making it. I can't remember which ones. Um, and the only the main source you get it from was a company in Denmark. They quickly were horrified that their drug, which is normally just used as an anaesthetic um, in by doctors and vets around the world, uh, they were horrified by it. So they started getting everyone they were selling it to to sign all these waivers that said you were not going to sell it to a prison to use it for the death penalty. Um, but then the EU, um, at the end of 2011, actually brought in quite strict export restrictions um, across for all the member states saying you can't sell these drugs to the US and that kind of screwed over the prisons because uh, these drugs have a, a sort of shelf life of about two years and that two years is now up and that's what people suspect has happened with this guy in Oklahoma where they use drugs that were out of date um, and he effectively uh, he didn't slip away he kind of felt the whole thing where his heart stopped and he was paralyzed and everything it's quite horrible um, there, there's also a, a man called Dennis McGuire in Ohio who is due to be executed and he's going to be subjected to a drug called hydromorphone um, which is a different kind of anesthetic and what you're seeing in the US now is this really weird situation where they're almost 
they're experimenting with different drugs to try and figure out a way of killing people humanely, um, which is just one of those really bizarre things. It's a very it's... odd situation. Um, Julie Bindle wrote a piece for us last year about women who fall in love with men on death row. And one of the things that most strikingly came across about that is the whole kind of, actually the kind of culture of death row and death row being a different type of prisoner. Mm. Um, and the fact that these things go through appeals for you know, 20 years mm. and they go up to the governor's level and they go to state level and, and they just, they chunter through. Meanwhile, people are being held in the, these absolutely tiny cells and, yeah. and and left you know alone in the cell for 23 hours a day. Yeah. And I think it's one of those really difficult ones when it comes to kind of human rights in the same way Guantanamo is a, diff- a difficult one because it's very hard to get sympathy for people who have done horrible things but there is a fundamental human rights point about whatever you feel that people have done what does it say about you as a society that you're willing to treat Mm. people like that i mean these these two men that we've talked about they were convicted of their crimes in the late 80s they've been waiting for that long for this to happen um but they can now look forward to uh there's uh well hydromorphone is one of the drugs that's being talked about there's also propofol which is a bit like valium um, and there's this this movement away from the three drug cocktail to just one drug, which is effectively kind of like giving someone a really high morphine dose. You give someone a dose of just any one drug, it'll be enough to kill them. But there's no way of knowing what it is like for someone to experience that. Um, no empirical way of determining that other than reactions. And often these things, I mean, the, the aim is in under seven minutes, they're meant to be dead. Often it can take one or two hours. Well, I think the case before, another case before Christmas, they spent two hours finding a vein on yep. somebody and then abandoned the attempt after a while. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting that I would love to know more about is about whether or not the families who go to watch this do feel a sense of closure that they have been promised all along, particularly through those incredibly protracted battles over mm. the thing, about whether or not that does feel like, in some way, a weight has lifted, which is one of the reasons uh, for having yeah, it there in the room. Often not, yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a lot of families, for a start, disagree with the death penalty or see it as not the um, form of justice that they'd like. And for those that do, the, the psychological impact of witnessing the execution it isn't really, it's not a moment that releases everything mm. a lot of the time, which is, is a real struggle for them. Yeah, it's really hard. I read a, a book um, by a forensic psychologist about about murder victims. And what he's, one of the things that they say in that is they he would recommend to um, to families of, of people who'd been, who'd been murdered not to go and leave flowers at the spot. Mm. Because then you would have to do the same every year. And what's the year that you stop doing yeah. that? Yeah. Because yeah. there's no point at which you stop feeling that loss that you feel that you've got over it, but you, people people find it absolutely impossible to to let go, mm. and I think that's one of the things that probably we don't know enough about because obviously you know how how people react to having someone taken away from them violently murdered and and what actually what they want versus what they need if you see what I mean or what they you know what they think that they want it's obviously very hard, but. Um, so where is this likely to go? Is America likely to con- to have to stop executing people? Um, it's oh god, it's it's one of those things again. It exists in a really weird legal space where there is that challenge from the cruel and unusual punishment angle, which means that states go are trying very hard. I mean, we have we have no proof. A lot of these prisons are just outright flatly refusing to sell anyone where they're getting their drugs from. And the only thing the FDA, the Food and Drug Association, yeah. can say is that like we haven't approve the import of any drugs that can be used in execution. So somewhere along the way, these prisons are finding drugs that they're going to experiment with to kill people. And whilst the death penalty has a lot of support in some of these states, so it's unlikely it's going to be um, overturned or repealed, 
it is likely you could see legal challenges to it purely on the basis of this is experimenting with humans. And on that slightly grim note, note. Um, no, thank you very much for, for talking to us, Ian. Thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil from the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and we are produced by Philip Morn. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.